Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 15 for the study of God's Word for the morning. been a little while. We, it's been a few months, actually, since we've been here, so I need to remind you of a few things as we get back into our study of 1 Corinthians. Now, this whole chapter, chapter 15, is all about one topic, the resurrection. The resurrection. Now, not necessarily about the resurrection of Christ. That's true, and that's sort of covered in the first few verses, but he spends most of the time talking about bodily resurrection. This church wasn't uh, struggling with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, they believed that. What they struggle with is a Christian getting a resurrected body. Our future resurrection. You know, maybe you've struggled with the reality of that too. And by that, I say it that way, the reality of it. Maybe not the theology of it. Maybe not the fact that it's like you can see that it's in the Bible. But the theology, uh, the, the reality of it is what I'm talking about. I mean, will we really be raised bodily? I mean, after all, death just seems so final and so tragic and so harsh. And all you see, you know, is the lights go out and the person is gone. And then the body decays. Can that body really be raised? Now listen, beloved. The whole truth about the resurrection is just basic Christianity, right? It's all over the place, really. And Paul's point has been... That because of the reality of Jesus' resurrection, there is the reality of our future resurrection. In John 5, Jesus said there would be bodily resurrection. In fact, in that passage, he spoke of bodily resurrection for both believer and unbeliever. And for the unbeliever that they would spend in eternity in hell Misery with that. In Romans 8, Paul spoke of a redemption or resurrection of the body. I think it's verse 23. He taught that very same thing again in 2 Corinthians 5 when he spoke of us getting a new tent. There are the first few verses. Peter said it in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, we're protected by the power of God for a future resurrection. Jesus, Paul, Peter, it's a pretty good company, right? We can say that bodily resurrection was clearly proclaimed, taught. And that tells us something, that the idea that before we were a body that, you know, that we were some pre-existing spirit, the idea that's out there, that it doesn't fit in the Bible. Now let me show you a few verses to start us out that have to do with the resurrection. So turn for a moment to John chapter 6. In verse 37, Jesus makes a bold statement. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's a guarantee. That's a promise. 
He says, that will happen. The Father has selected ones He wants to save, and so He gives those ones to the Son to save them. Now watch this. Can you prove that? Can you prove that's really going to happen? And that none will fall through the cracks. Go down to verse 44. And so here is the response to can you prove that Jesus will actually save them. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. End quote. What does he mean by raise him up? Bodily. In other words, your salvation, the truth that you can be drawn and then saved by Christ is predicated on him raising you up physically on the last day. If he's already saved, why does he need, that is, why does the the believer then now need to be raised up? You ever wondered that? What's being raised up? This is God giving all believers a resurrected body. You say, why? Because nothing that God creates gets spoiled, right? Sin has done that, and God, God's the one that made the, the tent. The tent, when it was made, when he gave Adam his physical being from the dust and breathed life, that wasn't sinful. The body is not sinful. It is responding to the reality of sin, but in and of itself is not sinful. Now, you remember who Paul is writing this to. This is a church, a real church at Corinth. And in this church, there are two types of people that have come that have become believers. And, and this is important because they represent two kinds of background. So that when Paul works his way through a letter like 1 Corinthians and, and you have this background, this becomes imperative. It becomes important. Connecting to them. Now this is church at Corinth is full of culture, full of experiences, full of thoughts and ideas about life. And in this church, you have the Greeks and you have the Jews who believed, and that they're and they're Christians now, but they they still have the influence from their past that that kind of thinking. Let me help you out with remembering what kind of thinking they had. Now the Greeks believed that the body was bad and that the soul was sort of a prisoner to that body and needed to be released. Okay. And so death was a, a blessed thing in their mind because he finally got to be released to go be in the cosmic deities or whatever. 
But then you have the Jew, right? So with the Greeks, the, the body was, the, was an obstacle. And so for them to believe in a bodily resurrection, that was an obstacle. It didn't make sense to the Greek. But to the Jew, and I was reading up on this last week, they believed that the, the ultimate would be bodily restoration. Now let me say it that way. Not resurrection, but restoration. What do you mean by that? That is, that someday, and this was what they would say was hope for the, for, for the Christian or for any person, someday you'll be reunited with your body. And you'll be able to have that body back again. Now, you remember Joe when he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. How they took that was that God was going to give them back the same flesh that they had before. He was going to restore it. Now, both of those views are wrong. The Greek view and the Jew, Jewish view. And Paul had to correct that. And so that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is. Now, you know, beloved, I mean, we have people today that have views like that. I mean, just crazy views that are out there about what will happen about the body. You have both extremes. And even in the church, I mean, you have people saying, oh, you know, you can't cremate. I mean, how will the Lord find what's needed to get us new bodies, right? And you might think that's crazy, but it's true. There are some people that think that way. Greek view, you know, you die and get released into the cosmic deities out there. The Jew view, you die and wait to get the same body. And Paul says, no. Actually, the body for the believer will be redeemed too. There's going to be transformation. There's going to be change. And it is going to be made to be an eternal body. So chapter 15 has been working through that as an argument. It's important that you understand it that way. And then you get to, to our last section. So look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 34 for a moment. Now, in these verses, you have motivations for um, a bodily resurrection. Paul says, I preach bodily resurrection. And I'll tell you the reasons why I do that. You stop believing in the resurrection and you lose the motivations for spiritual living. And he gave three of them. You remember this. Future bodily resurrection is motivation for evangelism. Why keep preaching? Verse 29. Because God uses that gospel message you share even from the grave. Now look at verse 29. That is what it means when it says, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? That word for can be understood because of. What will those people do who are baptized, who have become Christians, who have been converted, 
because of the testimony and faithfulness and evangelism of those people that are now dead. In other words, it's not much of a motivation if there's no bodily resurrection. And if there's no bodily resurrection, that means those people who preach the gospel saying that there is were lying. And they had all these people believe in their message and get baptized. What's to be done about that? I mean, why get baptized into a baptism that symbolizes resurrection when it isn't true? And so bodily resurrection is a motivation for evangelism. In other words, let me put it to you this way. It's a motivation for us to keep preaching because maybe that message that we share might resonate when we're gone. And those people that hear it can believe it and receive it. And so you're faithful that way and this becomes a great motivation Second, it is a motivation for exerting ourselves in serving Christ. In serving Christ. Verses 30 through 32. Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? I mean, I die daily. I mean, I face death every day. And what he means here is that he exerts himself in serving Christ to such a degree that he faces the possibility of dying every day. Why? Because there's a future bodily resurrection. In other words, you'll notice I don't value this body so much that it keeps me from doing dangerous things like preaching the gospel to the lost when my life is on the line. You remember that he was stoned to death. And you remember what he did the very next day? He just got up and went and did the same thing in the same area. Third, it is motivation for exemplary living, and that's verses 33 to 34. Bad company corrupts good morals. What's that mean? Well, what happens in this life matters. Stop sinning, he says in verse 34. Why? Because some have no knowledge of God. Some have no clue there's a gospel from a loving God where he came down to this earth and lived a perfect life and took the guilt of your sins on him and died in your place to give you freedom from your sins and proved it by rising from the dead physically. Some don't know about that. Listen, and that's shameful. God uses that to make the gospel message real to others. What he's saying is, your bad living makes bodily resurrection seem crazy. It's not that it's crazy, it's that your life doesn't convince them of believing something that's hard to believe. You understand that? Godly living though, now listen to this. But godly living makes it look possible to unbelievers. In other words, you're telling me there's a future bodily resurrection and I see your life that it is powerfully lived out. Therefore, maybe what you're saying is true. That's powerful. 
Now at this point, Paul says there are some of you who are still struggling with the resurrection because it just seems impossible to them. It seems unreal. It's unattached to reality. They're thinking to themselves how. They're thinking scientifically. They're thinking um, attached to what they can feel and taste and touch. And they're saying it just can't make sense to my mind. Why would there be a plan for the human body? I've spent so many years of my life and this thing is broken down in everything. Why would there be a future for that? And you can see people today living that way. People who, who, are, who are convinced that they need to make so much out of this life. As though this is so important. And, and they, because of that, they have a hard time hearing a message like this and seeing value in it. How does it even work? It, and these, this is where the Corinthians were. It just doesn't make sense to us. I mean, what, what is this? And what verses 35 to 39, 49, excuse me, are, and Paul's argument here is this. He needs to explain it. He needs to give an, an understanding of it in another form. That is to clarify it. And so we can call this a resurrection paraphrase. And that's when you restate something in a different way. To, to help someone understand just how something functions, how it can be, okay? Now look at verse 35. There are two questions that, are, that is really, I believe, one question. And it is, and I want you to understand this. I'm going to read it here, but I want you to understand they are asking these two questions that are really one question in a mocking tone. Two mocking questions that are really one. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? Now, the underscore there of that sentence is the word how. How? Come on. Can you even prove? I mean, do you know what you're talking about, Paul? Okay, then, how? Then explain it to us. You who seem to hold to this bodily resurrection thing, tell us about it if you can. Look at what else they say. And with what kind of body do they come? Tell us about the body. In other words, they were, they were trying to make Paul seem like he was somebody that believed in aliens or something. UFOs and all that kind of stuff. Okay? All right. The aliens are coming, right? All right. People are, are someday, Chris, you're trying to tell us a person can actually get a new body. We've never seen that before. You ever run into people like that? We've never seen it before, so therefore I don't believe it's true. How does it happen? Now watch this. Here is a person and he's thinking logically. He's saying, you know, a person dies, their body decays and decomposes and becomes dust. And maybe it's been 2,000 years and maybe they were in some explosion and there wasn't much left of the body. How are people like that going to be raised? See?
Seems far-fetched, says the Greek. With what kind of body do they come back with? Come on. They're going to just gather all the angels and everything and go start finding the pieces and bringing them back together? What is this? Now, at first glance, you might think this is an honest question, but I don't believe it at all. I mean, it's, it's the kind of question, how, that says, I just don't believe it. I can't wrap my mind around this to make any sense. Jesus raising? Sure. I mean, after all, he was perfect. He was all-powerful. But our bodies? No way. And what Paul does is give us four explanations to a mocking question. So let's see them all play out from our text. And let's call this first one a natural explanation. A natural explanation. Verses 36 actually to 38. Now remember you had Greeks that became Christians and you had Jews that became Christians and now both are together in this church at Corinth. And the Greeks believing the body was a prison here on the earth, needing to be released. And the Jews thinking that they would get an identical body like this one later. And Paul says, you're both wrong. Let me show you how. How do you get death out of the ground to come back to life? Well, not like Lazarus. I mean, he came back, but was the same Lazarus and eventually died again, right? So that's not an example of our bodily resurrection. How do you get it so that it lasts forever? Now again, this is such a relevant question. I mean, we we think that all the time. Where did that person go? That decayed body is there and then it becomes dust. How does that work with future resurrection? And the critics are saying this is stupid. When you die, that's it. You die. End of story. The body is gone. The life is gone. There's nothing more to see here. And what you're going to see is that Paul doesn't treat these guys like they're curious people trying to find answers. And there's a lesson somewhere in this for us about that. Look at verse 36. You fool. He says, you're talking like a fool now. I love it when he can just call a spade a spade, right? You're a fool. That which you sow does not come to life Unless it it dies. I mean, it might seem harsh, but he's just saying your argument is foolish. It it lacks sense. It's the very thing that I always feel when I'm talking to somebody that believes in evolution. I think, you're a fool. You lack sense. You don't make sense. You're not being honest with how you're treating things. You're turning a blind eye to some obvious things that I need to share with you. So Paul says, you're a fool. By the way, skeptics always mock the truth. And that's what these people are doing right here. They're mocking the truth. He's all right. We need to talk about this. Okay, you... You guys are in the natural things, right? I mean, you love to play the natural card. 
Greeks are into the human body that way. You love to look at life in its natural state. Well, then let's do that and then uh, and see how foolish you are. Let me give you then an argument that has to do with nature, with things that are natural. And what Paul does is he, he, he uses an illustration from nature to make his point. Now, it's important to understand at this point, Paul isn't trying to prove resurrection. Okay? He's explaining it. He's already proven it. He's already done that. Now he's explaining it. This is school time. This is time for class. Okay? This is uh, get your pad and pencil out and take notes, Paul says. All right? Need you to take notes. Look at verses 36 and 38. Let me read them and you can see his nature illustration. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. All right, what's the illustration? Not tough to see. It's an illustration about seeds, right? And um, sowing them into the ground, putting them into the ground so they can grow. Something can grow from it. Maybe you're trying to grow a garden or maybe some fruit or vegetables or whatever. Planting seeds. You put a seed into the ground And it goes into that ground in one form. And when it comes out of the ground, it doesn't look like the form that it went into the ground, right? That's the point. The same seed after getting water and sun and time becomes something else later full of life. Same ingredients, but completely different form. Pay attention to that. That is the crude point. It is the same thing, but yet it is completely different. Let's go a little further, see if I can go further. The seed planted is a dead seed, right? It's a, it's a detached now from the, 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 the plant. Maybe you can see that when you take the seed out. and it used to be green and now it dries up and it's a little drier. And You can go to a store and buy the package of these seeds and open the top of them and look inside them and you can see the seeds look all dried up and they look like they're not much. And Maybe you ever done that where I, I look at the seeds and go, this is going to grow something? This. Really? You know? I'm going to plant this in the deal and it's going to get in, and somehow it's going to grow. All right. But it does, doesn't it? The seed planted then is dead seed. In fact, when you put it into the ground, it decomposes. So watch the flow here. So it goes from death to decomposition and then to dynamic growth. How? 
Haven't you ever wondered that? I have. I mean, I'm no botanist or anything like that, so I'm more at the simple level. I, you know, I put it in there and I look out the window and I go, hey, it's growing. You know, I mean, that's me. That's how I do that. I mean, that's just unbelievable. I don't know. I guess you get excited about the, the little things, but it just seems like a big thing. But you know, there, there's life there, and there's no denying that point. And that's what he's that, that's what he's saying. I mean, there's there's clear life. Why should we be surprised by something by saying that something can die, can decompose, and then spring up with vibrant life in some other form that is healthy, that is teeming, that is full of blossom and bearing fruit? I mean, we witness that reality every day, all the time. Now, does the seed change? It does in some way that we don't understand, right? Is it the same composition? Yes, but it's changed. I mean, there's connection to sameness, but also difference and transformation. And so you have this life principle in this thing. It's an incredible argument. And there's even more here that I'm going to get to. There is um, old and new and transformation all together, all rolled into, into this one deal. And so you have this. It's the truth that a thing can die and be transformed and still be the same thing, but be changed into something different and full of life. Now, Jesus tried to tell us men this before he even he died. I mean, remember John chapter 12, verse 24? Truly, truly, I say to you, this is before his death on the cross, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In other words, he's clearly referring to himself as being this wheat of grain. And he's saying, I'm, I've come here to die. But that's okay, because if I do that, I'm going to bear much fruit. It'll be the cause of many people coming to spiritual life. So you might not understand this, but it's a good thing. See, He's comparing his own death to sowing a grain of wheat into the ground. Jesus went into the ground in death, rose, and then what happened? Glory. Glorified body. What was that body like? Was it the same body like the Jews think? No. Was it just a spirit like the Greeks think? No. Same Jesus, different and transformed in body. It was natural but it was also glorious so that no one recognized Jesus. John 20, unless Jesus let them see. And there's something about that that we're going to have to understand. Now there's one other thing in this point to see here. Notice here in verse 38. God gives it a body just as he wished. To each of the seeds, a body of its own. No two trees or flowers or plants are alike. They have this uniqueness about them, a unique look. 
a unique growth. And they're all di- it's all different. It's amazing. We should be amazed by that. And it is all just as the sovereign power wishes it to be. It all comes up out of the ground just the way God wishes it. What's the resurrection body have to do with God's will? It appears and functions and looks just like God's will, how God wills it to look. And that's the way it is with nature. And that's the way it is for bodily resurrection in the future. So the natural explanation, just like at the illustration of a seed, it's just like that. You can't argue those things about a seed. Paul says that is bodily resurrection. But there's a second kind of explanation to it. And let's call this secondly a physiological explanation. There in your notes. Verses 39 to 42a. Physiological. Now this is an argument that has to do with the form. With the form of it. What will our bodies look like when resurrected? The form. Verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. And so the key statement of the, is, is all flesh is not the same flesh. I mean, you say no resurrection bodies are... I mean, so, so are you telling us that resurrection bodies are, are all different? Nothing is the same? Now here we get to the creative side of our Lord. And I love that He is this. I mean, don't limit Him, Okay? That's even part of this point. Don't limit him. Now let's think about this from that statement, all flesh is not the same flesh. That's true physiologically, right? I mean, for example, you look at one at the core of a person, and we could start with the DNA of a person, right? And, and no two DNAs are the same. Not one is the same. It is a unique code that sets you apart from all others. That's what he's saying. It's not all flesh is the same. That's genetics. I mean, we could, we could go further. We could look at amino acids. You say, what is that? The building blocks of a person, right? And there is supposedly, really, I'm, I'm going to give you a word that I don't even know what it means. I've got to be honest. 600, there is supposedly 600 octodecillion combinations of amino acids that make up people. I just know that's more than a million. I've heard of the word billion. I think trillion's a real word. When you start getting past that one, I have no idea what that means. I know what octo means, that's eight. So there's something with that. I don't know, this just sounds like a lot. Okay, it's a lot. More than maybe our mind can, can fathom. That's why all flesh is not the same flesh. That's true physiologically. Listen, it's also true when it comes to our future resurrection bodies. Now that means, what that means is that no two people are alike. Not even twins. Have you noticed that? You say, well, but they're twins. You can't tell them apart. Listen, they can. They can. 
So can mom and dad. You get around them long enough and you know they're different. See, but they look so similar. They do, they do, but not they're not exactly the same. And that structure bears out with animals and fish. And because that is true, that means that God is limitless in how He makes things and how He makes humans and animals and so forth. Each creation has its own print, its own stamp, its own TM, you know, the little trademark. By the way, that's why dogs make more dogs. A dog never conceives a cat. Have you notice that? In fact, they're not even remotely like cats. Just drastically different. I've told you the story before, but I, it just it, it, it just makes me go back to raising our kids. And I remember trying to tell our oldest son once about how there are some evolutionists out there that believe that people came from monkeys. And he, as a young boy, I don't know, what, six years old or whatever, and I just remember him looking at me going, Papa, <laughs> come on, you're going to try to get me to believe that stuff? Uh-uh. I've been to a zoo. I've seen a monkey. That is not a person. Okay? And I tell you what, as a six-year-old, he was sounded like a genius to me. I said, all right, there you go. Good, good for you. You have to get them to college to get educated and, you know, get them smart to stop thinking like that, right? All different. Listen, evolution breaks down at this place. Because of this one thing about that animal, that it is made a certain way with the amino acids and DNA that's connected with it, it, there are differences, and yet it's not like one species creates a whole different species. God has done this. On purpose to make the statement about bodily resurrection. God has put the print in there already. He says more. Look at verses 40 and 41. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, and but the glory of the heavenly one, heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory, and so forth. He says that's the way it works with created things on earth. That's the way it works with created things in space, in the heavens. Way out there. Heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. In fact, and I was reading about this this last week, where they, they, they've been able to detect... Um, Differences with stars and, and colors and shape. And, and they've noticed that no two stars are the same. They're all different. And we don't have those big old telescopes that can tell that kind of stuff, but they do. And that's knowledge that's out there that you can read about. And what they don't realize is that God 
did all of that for you and me so that we can believe this truth about bodily resurrection. You understand that? Now, on the other hand, there's similarity. But there's also a great difference, right? I mean, the earthly glory is much less than the heavenly glory. And by glory, I think here it means um, brightness, intensity, heaviness. You could say even stamina or strength. You compare, for example, the glory of a flower to the glory of the sun, and it is vastly different. One is beautiful, and the other just intensely strong and bright. But listen, the one will fade and die. The other has lasted from the beginning of creation. He's making a point here. We've got to absorb this point. The word glory could also be translated manifestation, how a thing appears, and you can study this for yourself again, but star, stars differ from stars. The moon is different from the sun. We know that. And so even at that level, not one form is the same as another form. And that seems to be his point here. But look at verse 42. First part. So also is the resurrection of the dead. In other words, that is how it works. That's the way it will be when the Lord raises our bodies. Not one will be the same. And there's even more the idea of glorious Shekinah, like with the presence of God and found in the you know, Old Testament in the temple. In other words, when the Lord raises our bodies, He's going to push out glory somehow through them all. And each manifestation will be individual glory that He wills it to be. As one author puts it, it's going to be God's glow through you and me. That's exciting. God's glow through just incredible. Not and not one will be the same. You say, oh, that's amazing. I mean, what will that be like? We don't know. But we get a little bit of an idea. Let me give you some uh, a few verses to give you a little bit of an idea. First John three two. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, that is Jesus Christ, we will be like him. Because we will see him. Just as he is. We will be like Jesus. You say, well, what's Jesus like? Matthew 17. He gave a preview. You remember when he transfigured in front of the, the, the three disciples and his face shone, it said like the sun and his garments became as white as light. That's what we're going to be like. And it said the disciples fell down to the ground and wouldn't get up because there was so much light. Not only that, the glory glowed all over Elijah and Moses. Just incredible. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, you say, so so am I going to look like me? With this new resurrected body? Yes. Somehow. But also, no. I mean, they they knew it was Elijah and Moses. I'm not sure how, but they did. 
But somehow, no. I mean, remember John chapter 20? I mean, they didn't, they, they didn't know that it was Jesus, but they did. Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, they didn't know it was Jesus, and then they did. And so that tells me that something about the resurrected body in the future, there's going to be something about it that will be familiar enough to, to know, but on the other hand, you're not going to know. It's going to be something glorious. God's glory, not our own glory. And not only that, different levels of glory for everyone. Just unbelievable. Now he's not not done explaining our resurrection bodies to come. We need to look at the third explanation. and Let's call this third one an antithetical explanation. Now this is an explanation... By contrast, I mean, I mean, that's what we mean when we say antithetical, something that appears opposite or, 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 or in contrast. And sometimes it helps understanding something by seeing the opposite, right? And comparing it that way. So look at verse 42. He says, it is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now notice the four pairs. There's four pairs here of contrasts. And they all tell us something about the the first sowing. That is, when we were born. And the second sowing... That is the resurrected body to come. And all of them are contrast. So let's look at the first one. Sown a perishable body. Literally, some of your versions say incorruption, or in the little sign that says incorruption. That's it. Sown incorruption. Now, we're not, we're, he's not talking about our burial, it's, it's actually talking about our birth. Listen, from the beginning, Because of sin, we are all sown in depravity, and therefore we're all sown in corruption. We have been in a state of decay from day one. We begin a life of corruption from day one. Criminals in God's court, corrupt, right? Spiritually decaying from day one. On a path of corruption leading to death. It's a process that ends in the grave, right? That's our life sphere. Corruption. And even the best days, you can just write corruption, right? You ever feel that way? Oh man, today's been a great day. I just know tomorrow's not going to be a good one. So Why would you say that? There's a reason why. Because you're experienced in corruption. You know how that works. But then what happens to salvation? It all changes. I mean, and we live in light of the great truth and, and hope that one day the Lord will take us out of this bodily corruption into what? The imperishable body. The incorruption. First Peter 1.3 He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is, here it is, imperishable. And undefiled and will not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. Reserved for you. Where? Heaven. 
Someday you'll have a body that will never decay. And when does that happen? Does that happen right away, right after you die? No. It's you die, you wait with the Lord for that day when He will raise up that body. That's going to be great. Won't it? I mean, that, that means that age will never be a thing. See, no limitations for me. That's exciting. There's a second antithetical pair. And that is the pair of dishonor and glory. Now we've all been sown in dishonor. What's that mean? Romans 3 says it this way. We have all sinned and fallen short of the what? Glory of God. Romans 1, we dishonor God every day. How? By trying to honor ourselves above Him. We're sown in dishonor. You can't honor yourself without pushing His honor way down. It's like a teeter-totter, right? You go high, He goes low. That's life. If you're going to be high, then you know what? He will be low. And that's the way life is lived every day. And you never get off the teeter-totter. And it's always better if he's high. And we're like, well, maybe if I can get it just even. No. When he's high, we're low. And that's where life is lived best. You remember when God made Adam, he made him to represent man with the capacity to manifest God, to make much of him in his image, right? Made in his image. But since the fall, man does the opposite and he dishonors God. He dishonors God. He tries to belittle him. He tries to take credit for things. Now the point is this, someday we will have the capacity to bring God glory and manifest His glory and radiate His glory in a constant stream with a constant glow at all times. Not only made in the image of God, but finally able to manifest that image the way it's supposed to be. That's exciting. And There's a third pair. It says, sown in weakness, raised in power. Not hard to see the weakness, right? All the disease, all our, all the inabilities we have and all the struggle and all our limitations and all the failure and death and tragedy, all the infirmities and injustice and disasters and we can do nothing about stopping it. Listen, beloved, there's not a more accurate description of mankind than that we are weak. Right? We're sown in weakness. We have been battling weaknesses from day one. Someday we'll be raised right out of the grave and joined to the new transformed body with no power limitation at all. None. Imagine that. None. Speed, strength. I mean, Jesus walked through through the doors. Remember that? And He caused a boat to be full of fish. Just no limitation. Flat out amazing. He said, that's going to be our future? Yes. No limitation. 
And so resurrection will show out our bodies to be incorruptible, full of glory, unlimited in power, and then a fourth pair, spiritual instead of natural. You know, today we're natural. We're born natural. In other words, we were born with a body corresponding to this life. It matches this life. What does that mean? I was thinking about a few examples of what this means, but um, remember back in Matthew 19 when Jesus was talking about marriage? They brought to him a question, trying to trap him about marriage. All right, you know, this guy got married, you know, and then the wife died and so forth. You got a spouse that's died, and then they wind up marrying a bunch of different spouses. All right, who's, who are they really married to in heaven? Jesus says, uh, well, you don't really get heaven. Heaven's not that way. In heaven, there is no marriage. Why? Because it's different. And these were the Sadducees that didn't understand this. And he says, marriage belongs to the natural. The normal process of humanity ends in heaven. You say, is that good? Yes. In fact, Jesus uses this reasoning in Luke 20. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God. You say, we're going to have wings and all that stuff? No, that's not what he means. Like angels in that we have a body, we have a life that corresponds to that sphere. Okay? That realm. And that's just going to be incredible. But there's one more explanation to get to here so that you can really get this here. Fourth, a spiritual explanation. You see, what do you mean by spiritual? Verses 45 to 49. What would be the greatest spiritual picture of resurrection? Jesus Christ. Christ as our prototype. And that's what verses 45 through 49 are all about. Verses 45 through 49 is this, the spiritual explanation from the example of Jesus Christ. Now actually go back to verse 44. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. The fact that there's a natural body tells you there must be a spiritual body. I mean, we all have this spiritual component to us. No one, no one argues the natural body. What he's saying is, you can't just say it will be the same when you die, just different location. You can't say that the afterlife is the same. It's not. How do we know that? Jesus Christ. Been there, done that, Jesus says. Verse 45, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. Now that's a a quote from Genesis 2, verse 7. And what Paul does is he inserts a couple of words, the the word first and the word Adam. But but he's just explaining Genesis 2, 7 is about Adam. When did Adam become a living soul? At creation. Now you remember before that, he was, you know, just a lump of dirt. Which is a good way, men, to think of ourselves. Really at our base, we're just lumps of dirt, okay? And then God breathed into him, and he became a living soul. A natural man, and Adam passed down his naturalness to his son, who passed it down to his son, and so forth. And so when he sinned, that got passed down too, right? 
And that's all he could pass down was that, that naturalness. But notice verse 46. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. Now, what's he talking about? There's a spiritual body that came later, not first. Adam's natural body came first. The spiritual body was the one Jesus Christ would give us. Why? Because he was given one at, you know, he you had the incarnation, then you had death, then you had burial, then you had resurrection in that glorification. Okay? That's what he's talking about. That's the spiritual life he's talking about being able to give. Verse 47, the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. And here Jesus is called the second man. Now that is just a way of talking about representation. Adam represents all earthy people. And that's any human. Jesus represents all heavenly people, and that's any believer, any Christian. So verse 48, follow. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. What do you have to do to become earthy? Nothing, just be born. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. We are what we are naturally, earthly-wise, because of Adam. And he passed down to us sin, right? Spiritually, we are what Jesus Christ passed down. What did he pass down? Spiritual life that is like his. Adam was made of dust, goes back to dust. Jesus came and was eternal. He eternally existed. So what is it that he passes down? Eternal life. We get all that belongs to Jesus Christ because of his death and resurrection as a heavenly person. Listen, that includes a future bodily resurrection. Did he get one? And so will we. Verse 49. Just as we have been born... Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. What image was that? Acts one eleven. Remember this? Jesus had been on the earth after being glorified and was leaving to go to be with the Father. He just left. He ascends up. Angels are now talking to the disciples and they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Whatever Jesus was like during those 50 days when he was with the disciples, that's what we will be like. Same. Period. Just blazing glory. 
Jesus already told them in Matthew thirteen forty three what will will be like. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. We're going to glow like the sun someday. Or Philippians three twenty one. end with this verse. We eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Now, as we conclude here, what can we say about our lives here? in light of what's coming. Why are we so attached to them? Why are we so attached to this world? Just incredible. All of that. And the thing I fear the most is I gave you the real short version. we got to pray. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for um, such a future, Lord. We deserve none of it. And it sounds amazing. And uh, we know, Lord, there are many that have gone before us and they're waiting for this very thing in heaven. And then there's us who live on this earth. And, Lord, we're the unfortunate thing is we so often live as though we don't belong to that realm. Forgive us for that. And help us to stop clinging so tightly to this life and this world. Thank you, Father, for giving us such great, great hope. And I pray, Lord, grow us in that hope. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.